Is God violent? Is the Christian God a God of violence? I happened to be talking to my sister in Winnipeg last night. She's a Mennonite pastor. And I happened to mention my topic for today. And she said, how will they receive that? I don't know. But is the Christian God a God of violence? And John's answer may surprise us. Many modern people hold that the Christian faith, its scriptures, its God, are inherently violent and that the church of the crucified Messiah breeds violence, not peace, on the earth. The collective historical memory of Europe and her former colonies is that of Christians following the Reformation who slaughtered each other in the name of the Lamb of God. Now, in the revelation of God to John of Patmos, God truly battles against the destroyers of the earth. But let's be clear, who are the enemies of this God? Satan, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and Babylon, the whore. In 1118, the 24 elders fall on their faces and worship God and proclaim that the time has come for the wrath of God to destroy those who destroy the earth. The great proclamation of the previous chapter, chapter 18, that, that Babylon, the Roman Empire, uh, is seen to, to fall. She is the center of pornea, verse 3, of sexual immorality. And the kings and the merchants and the captains of the earth have committed fornication with her and grown rich from the power of her luxury. Babylon is guilty of the blood of the saints of God. In one hour, says our text, the judgment of God has fallen upon the city once idolized as the greatest city of the world. Unbridled luxury, political and economic injustice, sexual immorality, and the refusal to accept the living God are the marks of this city's iniquity. These marks bear a certain eerie similarity to aspects of the modern and postmodern world. In chapter 19, we're introduced to a great multitude praising God. The worshipers are the 24 elders and the four living creatures, the servants of Yahweh, all who fear him, great and small. These heavenly worshipers give us a glimpse of the future in which God alone establishes justice on the earth. The worshipers praise God first for the destruction of Babylon. Smoke rises from the city forever. The demonstration that this center of evil will never, ever recover. Second, the worshipers praise God for the long-awaited marriage of the Lamb to his bride, the church. The Lamb who is at the center of the throne. The Savior of those victimized by Satan and his cohort. The Lamb who will wipe away every tear from the eyes of those who have suffered unjustly. The victims of history. Four great hallelujahs issue forth for the first time 
oddly, in this book for the first time, like the sound of many waters and mighty thunder peals. Is the worship of heaven a model for that of earth today? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb's bride is ready. Clothed appropriately in fine white linen, the righteous deeds which in God's grace they've been empowered to perform. White linens, a white stone back in 217, and soon a white horse, white, the color of righteousness. And so God, John seems to prepare us for the account of this great marriage and the feast to follow. But wait, instead, the heavens open and a rider on a white horse whose name is Faithful and True rides into battle. He is the Word of God and his robes are dipped in blood, not the blood of his enemies, but his own blood once offered at Calvary. He's inscribed with one name which only he knows, a reminder that while the church's knowledge of God is sufficient for salvation, the church's knowledge is not exhaustive. Revelation does not dissolve mystery. From the mouth of this writer comes a sharp sword with which he will rule the nations of the earth. Oddly, perhaps, there is no battle scene here. No military action is ascribed to the armies which follow God's Messiah on their white horses. The sharp sword from the mouth of the Word of God establishes his sovereign authority over the earth. The sword alone is counted worthy to pour out God's wrath upon those who followed Satan. We are tempted to say, well, this, this isn't really violence, it's, it's just a word after all. But this is the mighty word which brings creation into being. And there's another great supper spread, not that of the Messiah's wedding as we might have expected, but a supper in which the birds feast upon the satanic destroyers of the earth. The beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire. The rest of Satan's followers are killed by the sword from the mouth of the rider on the white horse. So how, if at all, do we reconcile the figure of the lamb slaughtered for the sin of the world with the rider on the white horse who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. <clears throat> the theologian Miroslav Volf argues against a, a God who would act as if sin does not exist. By contrast, to affirm the identity of the lamb and the rider on the white horse is to refuse to pretend that the world is already redeemed, yes, by the cross, but not yet. God's patience with the destroyers is great, but it has its limits. Every delay in God bringing in the consummation is a time of the continued suffering of the saints and the innocent of the earth. 
That's why the church is inevitably an Advent community all the time, praying every day, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Do we yearn for that coming of the rider on the white horse? It seems to me that God's revelation to the seer of Patmos provides us with materials for a Christian theology of history which we badly need today. World history is the scene of warring spiritual forces, those of God and the powers of darkness. The battle, says St. Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The culmination of God's kingdom is revealed as eschatological, an achievement not of humans, but of God and his Messiah at the end of world history. While the wounded lamb invites all to come to salvation through his blood, God must pronounce judgment upon those who insist on being beasts and false prophets, followers of Satan, destroyers of the earth and its people. A God who smiles benignly at the atrocities of Auschwitz, Rwanda, Syria, Myanmar, the list goes on and on, failing to unleash his anger at the perpetrators is unworthy of worship. In the light given to John of Patmos, such a non-indignant God can only be considered a figment of the liberal imagination. But here is the critical point. The rider on the white horse demonstrates that violence is rightly the monopoly of the biblical God. We, his followers, are to take up our crosses to follow the crucified Messiah. We are to eschew violence and pursue peace as best we can. But only God can be trusted with a judgment which is both just and an aspect of God's love. Human justice has shown itself to be at best exceedingly rough. God's justice alone is righteous. Our human attempts to exercise violence in the pursuit of justice always end in the victims soon coming to resemble the former oppressors. John of Patmos provides us with a vision which completes the eschatological vision of the Gospels and of St. Paul. Wolf, again, says, and I'm quoting, the certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. The certainty that God can be trusted with judge, uh, judgment and violence, God alone can be, gives those of us in the middle of history the opportunity to pursue peace only and to turn away from violence. It's in that certainty that God will deal with those determined to be destroyers of the earth and its people that the church of the crucified lamb is absolutely set free to renounce violence in all its forms and to work for peace. There can be no new Jerusalem on earth no consummation of the kingdom inaugurated by the Lord Christ. 
without the justice of God first having been delivered against all who refuse the embrace of the Lamb. We are to take up our crosses and follow the Lamb of God in this time between the times, allowing God to be God, trusting God and his Messiah to do justice in the end, and praying every day, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And now to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be ascribed as is most justly due, Almight, majesty, dominion, and power, now and forever. Amen.